What's up, everyone? This is episode number 14 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and uh, this should be an interesting one. So earlier today, I posted a teaser of the episode title on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum podcast. So if you didn't see that, the title of this episode is Luca's Mom. Uh, if it doesn't make sense to you now, keep listening. It will later. I, I know I already aged myself a, about a month ago with the Tamagotchi reference, but this reminded me of that Fountains of Wayne song, Stacy's Mom. But anyway, more on that later. I've got to talk about the NBA Finals. I'm recording this. It's 11.55 p.m. I just got done watching Game 4 of the NBA Finals. Um, so it's fresh on my mind here. I really haven't had a lot of time to process these thoughts. But man, Toronto is really putting it to the Warriors right now. Just going through this game, if I had to, I, I just jotted down a few things that really stood out to me. It, it was weird to see that with Golden State having several starters hurt and then having Steph have, you know, he logged so many minutes this last game. Uh, it felt like they were just running, 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 running this first half. And, you know, you would think they might slow the pace down a little bit to try and um, give their guys a, a little bit of breathing room. But they, they didn't. They just kept running and running and running. And I think that hurt them in the long run. It felt like they had a really big lead in the first half. But for the most part, the score was pretty close. Um, I thought it was a very good physical first half, regardless of what the stats said. You know, the shooting percentages were horrible. The score was low for a a Warriors-Raptors game, at least. But it was a good first half. Um, Second half, then Toronto just really ran away with this thing. And and Golden State kind of lingered for a little bit to make you think, well, they're they're going to come back. But there was kind of this point where the crowd was noisy, but it, it was kind of a buzz. And it was kind of eerie because I think it, it sunk in for some people. And I'm not saying that this series is over, but I, I think it sunk in for those fans, especially that um, this could be it. You know, it's a la- could be the last game at Oracle, could be the last game of this season, could be the last game of, of a, this Warriors run that's been um, pretty incredible over these last five years or, or whatever it's been. But it, you, you cannot understate what Toronto has done in this series, and you cannot understate what Kawhi Leonard has done. It, it's just very methodical. He just kind of cuts the, the defense apart. It's not flashy. Now, let's say if Toronto does go on to win this thing, I, I, there's always going to be people that will say, you know, well, they're, they're going to, to put a disclaimer on this series and say, yes, but this was the series where all of Golden State's main players were hurt or most of Golden State's main players were hurt. Yes, that's true. But if you look at a game like tonight, Toronto just, they were firing on all cylinders. I You know, if you put Duran out there, like I don't even know if, if that team would have beat Toronto tonight. Some of the previous games, probably so. I don't know if I mentioned it on here. I felt like, or if I've even recorded since then, but I felt like Toronto, initially, I felt like they lost the series when they lost game two because they had control of it. Golden State really ended up escaping with it. That's not the case anymore. Um, You know, I was wrong about that. I was wrong about the series at the start. Now, 
The only thing that could be really interesting from here on out and could even change the landscape of the summer, and this is not a hot take, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I just want to look at this scenario since we've got three days or whatever until our next game. If Kevin Durant is healthy enough to come back, which I don't think he is, but if he is healthy enough to come back, and if in some way he leads this team to three straight wins, you've got all of these people, no matter how incredible Kevin Durant has been, all of these people were saying these are not his titles, he jumped onto something that was already started, whatever. If Kevin Durant could somehow come back, win these three games, this title is Kevin Durant's. I don't think that's going to happen, but let's throw it out there. If it does happen, then he probably doesn't leave. He probably stays in Golden State. Now he's a part of this actual run. They bring the band back together. Who knows? I don't think it's going to happen, but I want to throw that out there. Just another thing to think about because that's what we do. We talk about sports. Anyway, I, I look forward to you know whatever becomes of this series next week. I, I figure the series will be done by the time I record next week's episode, so it'll be fun to kind of watch that unfold. Um, as for the hobby chatter, though, because that's why we're here, there's really two main stories that have consumed the basketball side of the hobby lately. Um, number one is the PWCC stuff. And then number two is um, there are a lot of questionable Luka Doncic autographs out there. I know that's that's nothing new, but those talks have kind of heated up lately to where it seems like I need to talk about it. Well, I'll talk about that in a minute here. And I know I've talked a little bit about PWCC in the last few episodes. There's been some controversy with them selling altered cards. That's nothing new. Uh, In case you missed it, their CEO went on a sports card interview show on YouTube and he encouraged people to contact him. He encouraged dialogue in the collector community. Well, since then, quite a bit more controversy has come up. So much so that Darren Ravel has has tweeted about it a few times. I still, I've done what I said I was going to do. And I took your questions and I emailed PWCC because that's what they wanted. In fact, I contacted them three different times. I contacted them with several different email addresses. Nothing. No response. Now, in the meantime, I've I've seen record of them responding to eBay messages regarding specific cards. They've put out public statements. They can go post on Net54. I mean, I didn't even get a courtesy copy and paste message. So listen, the the, the point of this podcast, though, is, is not to drag people through the mud. That's not what I'm here to do. But I I will say this because I am a little bit irritated. When you have the gall and you have the arrogance to talk about transparency, to talk about the need for dialogue, and then you keep quiet and you go hide in your underground vault, you deserve whatever's coming to you. I don't know exactly where this thing's going to go. Um, I really won't be sorry, though. I won't feel sorry if PSA or BGS... Or who knows, maybe even the feds. I don't think it's going to happen. But maybe the feds come and they decide to make the pain flow. Okay? I will not feel bad. End rant. I'm done with you this week. You don't deserve my time. All right. Let's go and talk about our main topic of this week, though, which is the the questionable Luka Doncic autographs. And... I'm going to assume if you're listening to this podcast that you already know who Luca is. Um, but real quick, anyway, he's the point guard for the Dallas Mavericks. 
He was selected third overall by the Hawks, but he was traded to the Mavericks in exchange for the draft rights to Trey Young. At the time, that scene, you know, a lot of people thought that was crazy. Well, Trey had a really good rookie season, too. But anyway, Luka, he's very flashy. He had a very exciting style of play, so people were enamored to him from the start. He hit several game winners early in the season. So in, in the hobby world, he got our attention, much more so than the two guys that were drafted in front of him in Aiton and Bagley. So everyone went Luka chasing this year. Hey, you know what? It's a pretty good warm-up for Zion Mania. Um, At this point, I think he's got a 50-50 shot at winning Rookie of the Year. It's either going to be him or Trey. They might even do co-rookies of the year. Who knows? However, over the course of this season, there's been a developing idea that someone else is signing Luka's cards. A lot of Luka's cards, at least. Presumably a female based on the style of the handwriting. I don't know. That's what people think. So the autos, they, several of them seem to look considerably different depending on the release. These types of accusations, they're not necessarily uncommon. After all, someone calculated how many autos the rookies signed a year or two ago. I think in 2017, it eclipsed the 10,000 signature mark. So some guys were signing over 10,000, a combination of cards and stickers. And so much so to where some guys have seemed to stop signing altogether. And I don't know if quantity was the reason for this or not, but I I suspect it is. It looks like Jalen Brown is just done signing autographs, at least for Panini. And if I think back, you know, if I I put some of my personal experiences into this, I used to do quite a bit of in-person autograph collecting for minor league baseball and spring training. I still do a little bit of it, just not as much as I used to. But um, when I would graph a ball for a number of years, you would see if if you'd have a a program or something for a guy that doesn't have cards, usually they take that program, they take their time signing it. It's something they're really happy to do. It's something they're proud of. The moment that guy gets a Bowman card, it changes everything. I'm not saying that I blame the player, but you'll see that the autograph speeds up a little bit. Um, there's more demand now, you know, things will typically start to change. And that's not true with everybody, but typically that's when things start to change. Um, so, so we can apply that here. There's going to be some changes because of, of demand. Just like we talked about with National Treasures, there's changes in the, the types of cards they produce and how many of them because of the demand. So that's going to drive this whole thing. Um, so this definitely has an effect on this whole autograph market and this whole autograph game as well. Before I examine this Luca thing a little bit closer, though, I want to detail a couple of methods that have been at the center of, of autograph controversies for ages. The two specifically that I want to look at are auto pins and ghost signers. Okay. I might have mentioned it on here before, but I, I collect presidential and political autographs. I don't care what political party somebody is affiliated with. They're part of history to me. So... One thing, though, about this whole genre of autographs is you're, you're going to get a lot of signatures that are just straight up pre-printed. I would say anything that comes from the, the White House is going to be just printed on. And one article that I read kind of broke it down as follows. It says, it turns out there are varying levels of fakeness in presidential signatures. There are pre-approved form letters with digital signatures. There are pre-printed cards for birthdays and other special events. And then auto pin signatures generally are reserved for more personalized correspondence that doesn't score a real signature, say officials from administrations past. One that they mention here towards the end is the auto pin. And that's what I want to talk about. The whole reason why I bring up politics is because this machine 
for the most part, was created way, way back. I would say probably in the 1950s. It was created for politicians mainly, but also celebrities or anyone whose signature was in high demand. It started out as a very large machine and now it can fit on more of a tabletop, but it's a machine that is programmed. It has a mechanical arm. It still uses an actual pen to sign an autograph, but it's a programmed signature. And when it comes to presidents, these have been used since Eisenhower. Um, and, and even according to one autograph website, Ronald Reagan had 22 different signature templates. So that kind of boosted the aura of authenticity surrounding his fake signatures. So it was hard to pick these out because he, he had a template for so many different variations of his name and his signature. Some of the athletes that signed through the mail have been using these for years. Tony Romo was a known auto pin in the mail. Chipper Jones used one for a while. A lot of Arnold Palmer um, graphs were auto pin. And collectors got, they got better over the years at picking these out because they could measure them. And if the autos were all the exact same size, that was a pretty good indicator. Um, as far as basketball, I believe that most John Calipari autos through the mail are auto-pinned, but these can be really tricky, though. Um, sometimes you'll even see that these machines are used on books that would come from, like, Barnes & Noble or Books A Million that have a sticker that will say, signed by the author. And that's sports and non-sports. I saw an example with Reese Witherspoon. A good example in the sports world was Wayne Gretzky in 2016. A really good giveaway for this, though, is to look at the pressure points on the back side of the page. Now, I'm not going to talk about this a lot right now, but there are some really good resources for that online. If I think about it during the week, I'll try and throw an example on my Instagram so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. A little bit more auto pin history. Another funny example that stuck out to me from the early 2000s was that um, one of Enron's executives, if you remember the Enron scandal, Kenneth Lay, he used the auto pin on a lot of documents and then he tried to, him and his lawyers tried to use that as an excuse to avoid taking responsibility for documents that had his signature. That really didn't decide the case though. There were so many other factors in play, but it was just interesting that they had the audacity to try and do that. Well, these are generally, auto pins are generally regarded as a copy of a real signature. There was one recent instance where a president had no choice but to use one of these for an official document. And that was in 2017. It was Barack Obama. Basically, there was a um, lawmakers passed an extension on certain provisions of the Patriot Act. Well, it was approved last minute by Congress. Obama was overseas. I think he was in France at the time. So there wasn't time to get this document to him. So he approved having his auto pin sign this document. And a lot of people, you know, the White House obviously didn't publicize this. They didn't want to make a big deal out of this. A lot of GOP House members were not happy about it. They asked him to re-sign it later on. I have no idea if they actually got their wish or not. But anyway, for pretty much most of, of everything, auto pins are not accepted. Okay, that was an extreme example where one had to be used and it had the authorization of the person involved, but generally they're not accepted. Okay. Now, the other option and the other kind of arm of autograph controversies that I want to talk about and introduce here before I give you some more specific examples involves ghost signers. And um, ghost signing is very simple. That's when someone signs autographs for somebody else. Okay, now, obviously, this wouldn't fly if you were at a game and let's say 
you know, let's say you were at a Spurs game 10 years ago and Tim Duncan called the ball boy over to the tunnel to sign your Tim Duncan cards, you know, that wouldn't fly. So this obviously happens behind closed doors. Speaking of presidents, and I talked about them already, most of them use auto pins, but it's interesting to note that Lyndon B. Johnson had an entire team of secretaries signing for him. And out of all the more the post-World War II presidents, I would say he is one of the toughest ones. I can't figure these out because there are so many quality secretarial signatures. There's an entire book devoted to these examples. But someone signing for somebody else, this happens with athletes quite a bit too. It happens in the mail a lot. Don Zimmer, he's no longer alive, but when he was alive, his wife used to sign his mail. Tommy John's wife used to sign his stuff. One of the, the funniest rumors that I've heard, and I, you know, I don't know if we'll ever be able to verify this, but um, in, around 1980, when Ken Griffey, and we're talking senior here, was on the Big Red Machine, there was a rumor that his son would sign his mail. Now, that sucks for you if it's 1980, but in retrospect, that might have been the easiest way to get an autograph of Ken Griffey Jr. He's been a notoriously tough signer since his rise to stardom. Okay, so now I've introduced both the auto pin and ghost signers, and I've got two recent hobby controversies that I want to talk about that covers both of them. So let's start and let's go back to the auto pin. A lot of you probably have heard about this controversy. It's not basketball cards, but it is important to this discussion here. So the biggest auto pin scandal in recent sports card history revolves around Dak Prescott's cards and his redemptions from 2016 Prism Football. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but basically originally they were a redemption. They were shipped off from Panini in the summer of 2017. The signatures all looked exactly the same, although some of them were on weird spots in the signature area. Shortly after, when people started sending them to BGS, they looked so off that even BGS said, we, we are not going to grade or authenticate these autos. These look off. And Steve Grad at BGS and his team, they brought it to the attention of Panini. So they put a little bit of pressure on Panini. And then Panini, they pulled, they recalled these redemptions, they canceled some of them. Um, so some of you that heard my redemption episode, and if you haven't, go back, listen to it. Okay, Hopefully I'll do a follow-up to that one soon. Imagine waiting for a redemption, getting notification that it was actually coming in the mail, only to find that you either get a fake auto or your package is then recalled by Panini before it even gets to you. So this whole thing was going on here. Darren Ravel got a hold of it. It was even discussed on SportsCenter. And on air, he mentioned there was no response from Panini and no response from Dak or his team. It wasn't a good look for either one of them. Eventually, this hit most of the major news outlets before Panini said or did anything publicly. Finally, they did, and although it wasn't anything close to a formal apology, they committed to making the situation right. Here's part of their statement that they put out. It said, Panini has committed to remanufacturing all the Dak Prescott Prism football cards, which Dak will sign to replace all the autograph cards within the Prism collection. All the remanufactured cards for the Prism collection autographed by Prescott will feature a special Dak Prescott hologram to differentiate the new cards. In other words, once this one got enough mainstream attention, it was handled. So what did they do? They got a frowny Dak on camera to sign some autos and the thing was over. 
Okay, seems like there's really not a lot of fallout after that. Except for, while this thing was going on, people figured out then they, they were looking at all, I mean, every Panini Auto at this point was kind of being inspected. Doesn't mean that people found a lot of stuff, but they did find something from 2014 Panini Country Music set of all sets. They figured out that both guys from the band Florida Georgia Line used an auto pen to sign their cards and stickers from this set. And, you know, I don't know a lot about country music, but from what I've read, these were some of the top names in the product. And they actually sold some albums on their website around the same time that were also auto pen. So they were very well versed with this machine. Panini had some of these in their reward store at the time, and they pulled them down. Now, it's impossible, or well, it seems like they disappeared. We'll put it that way. It's impossible to know, did Panini pull them or did people snatch them up thinking they might be collector's items? Okay, I wouldn't be surprised if Panini just quietly kind of took them down and didn't say anything about it because it mirrors the shack situation, which we'll cover in a minute. Um, in the middle of this whole card situation, though, someone I, I felt like um, a couple people online asked a pretty good question. Seeing as these were all on stickers, they were sent back to them as big sticker sheets. Shouldn't Panini Quality Control have picked up on it? The project manager, somebody, shouldn't they have seen it? Well, the answer is yes, but they didn't. And in this case, they also didn't do anything about it. So two years after the autos were discovered, nothing was done. Five years after the product came out, nothing. Panini never did anything about that situation. I guess they figured, you know what, it's a country music set. We're just going to let it go. All right, so that was the auto pin part. I want to move on to actual ghost signers because there is a big difference here. And Panini has actually explicitly addressed ghost signing before, but never with a player that was really sought after. In May of 2017, so this was actually right before all of the DAC stuff, um, a football product, I think it was Contenders or, or one of the, the college ones. I don't collect a lot of football. Anyway, they had a first-round pick in it. His last name was, I think, McKinley, and he had someone else sign his cards. Once it was discovered, the company posted a response on their blog. They said, while this is an extremely unfortunate situation, Panini America officials have agreed to work with McKinley and his representatives to rectify the issue by offering to replace any McKinley autographs from the aforementioned products with versions featuring authentic McKinley signatures. So that was an instance where they took care of it, and they did the right thing. Um, kind of like they, they eventually took care of the DAC stuff, it just took a little bit of pressure. Okay, apparently this, this instance didn't take the same amount of pressure. I figure it was just easier for them to clean this one up real quick. This is where it gets tricky, though. Let's bring in a big-name athlete. Let's bring in Shaquille O'Neal. Um, to give you a little bit of backstory about Shaquille O'Neal autograph history, someone has been signing Shaq's mail and multiple cards in the mail and adding his jersey number and everything on and off for quite a while now from a Lake Mary, Florida address. I've seen some successes that date back as far as 2011. Um, there might be some that go back even further. And I'm on a couple of different autograph message boards, and the, the consensus then and, and in the years that followed is that these autographs are no good. For one thing, he seems to sign at all times, even when he's, it's documented he's on the road or he's out of town or he's doing work. Secondly, they don't match up to any of his in-person examples that anyone has posted. 
And then lastly, although PSA and BGS are not perfect, they're not passing these autographs either. Well, around 2013, Shaq certified Panini autos, meaning the ones you'd get out of a pack. They started to look a lot like the bogus mail autographs. And this actually went on for three years until somebody finally piped up in 2016 and said, wait a second, these look off. There were many defenders at first, but there were a couple Shaq collectors that really pooled their resources. Someone created a chart that showed certified and in-person examples throughout the years. They broke it down by the year, and it became very clear that someone else was likely signing his stuff. It's funny looking back at this thread because somebody asked, well, you know, they said, I wonder what Panini would do if it was somehow proven 100% without a doubt that Shaq didn't sign the cards. And granted, I forgot I was in this thread, but I was and I responded, well, they might address him in private or go out of their way to avoid the issue. At most, they'll bring him in house for one signing and show off all the pictures on their Instagram. So what happened? Well, 2017 rolls around. They got Shaq at the All-Star Weekend. They set him down, frowny Shaq, and he signed some cards on camera. And they put it on their Instagram. And they didn't say anything about somebody else signing his cards. But the most significant thing to me in all of this is that after that signing, or at least the cards that were a part of that signing, his signature reverted back to the pre-2013 autograph. That tells me all I need to know. Now, what was the difference here? There wasn't any pushback from BGS. It didn't really get any mainstream attention. Um, In fact, there were still some of the bogus sticker autos that got put on cards after this point, and even a few more questionable on-card autos. There's just no one powerful enough holding Panini accountable in this case. So you could see the way that they handled Shaq, a really, you know, likable athlete, really big time, big name athlete. And that might be something that's important to know then when we approach this whole Lucas situation. Okay, so here we are. Fast forward to January of 2019. At this point, keep in mind, you know, this is months into the NBA season. There's already been some speculation that Luke is not signing his own cards. So a poster online decided to try and do a more thorough analysis to try and prove things one way or another. So as a poster, I think his screen name was Roger Maris. I think I've actually mentioned him on this show before. He starts by showing the pre-Panini or the pre-NBA autographs on several different surfaces. He's got a jersey, he's got a shirt, he's got an upper deck sticker. And basically it it reads like the word Lulu, L-U-L-U, all lowercase, in a tall compressed manner. So that was pre-NBA. Once he makes it to the NBA, his auto seems to be a little bit more rushed, which, as I alluded to earlier, seems to be the norm. Okay, Once somebody makes it and they start signing a bunch of stuff, their autograph will change. So this poster gives the example of the autograph on a card, a jersey, and a basketball. It's still tall and compressed, but the, the U's are not as clear, and it doesn't really read Lulu anymore. These are the autographs that we see on the next day autos and some of the draft sets that are actually signed around the photo shoot time or they're signed in the presence, some of them even draft night, of a Panini employee. So Panini witnessed these scratchy looking signatures. Okay, so the season progresses. Panini's second wave of autographs hit and a very neat, loopy version of Lulu emerges that we haven't seen before. 
It doesn't match the pre-NBA signature. It doesn't match the first wave of NBA SIGs. You can't really say it's a sticker thing either because he's already produced two very different looking sticker autos. This causes the the main poster of this thread. After all this happens, and mind you, this conversation's been going on for a while now. He says, well, if you look at the narrative of this, it, it makes no sense. Am I supposed to believe that in the middle of shortening his autograph to make it faster to sign, Luca suddenly decides to make it longer and slower than it was before he entered the NBA? I can't think of any reason why he'd do that, and in fact, it runs counter to his motivation for shortening his autograph in the first place. So the thinking for some people then quickly evolves into the fact that his mom has to be signing these because the signature looks a little more feminine. Now, let me stop here and say I am not a handwriting expert. I do look at more handwriting than the average person. I am a teacher. I grade essays all year long. However, the jump from it looks off to it looks feminine to it must be his mom is quite the jump for somebody to reasonably make. And I'll add here that a lot of people find Luca's mom to be attractive, including Andre Iguodala on draft night, if you didn't see that on social media. And as a result of this attraction, I think people want her to be a part of this narrative. Okay, but nonetheless, we know that mother and son are very close, so if it is a female, it very well could be her. Anyway, there are a couple of months of debate where people are breaking down signatures and signing angles, and you have people trying to emulate his auto on their own, and so on and so on. I'm not going to talk about every little thing here, but basically we see the autos go back and forth some throughout the course of the year. Some sets even show a mixture of the scratchy and loopy autos, like Optic. A few people along the way chime in with pictures of items they've got signed in person. Then in February, um, he signs a deal with Fanatics where he signs some stuff for them and it looks like it's the scratchy signature and they released a video at one point. And as time goes on, it seems like more people are convinced that the scratchy quick autos are legitimate and the slow loopy ones are signed by somebody else, presumably mom. I'm not taking a side at this point, but that seems to be the way that things are shaking up. March rolls around, and Luca's website starts selling shirts and promises a signed promo photo for everyone that buys one, Okay, which is a big deal because a, a Luca auto is something everybody was after. Predictably, their social media is then bombarded with all of these requests of, you know, is Luca the one signing it? So what do they do? They reply with a still shot of him sitting there with a bunch of photos fanned out on the table very neatly. And their message says, we received a lot of messages asking if the cards you received by ordering Luca's t-shirts in the pre-sale really are signed by Luca himself. So here's our proof. And then they followed it with the, the staring eyes emoji. I don't know if that's the right term for that emoji. You guys know what I'm talking about. Well, all this really did was it seemed to just add fuel to the fire. So the people that thought there was a ghost signer said, no, that's staged. It's not actually him signing. Look at the way those photos are all panned out. You know, he, they probably brought him in. He, he signed or posed with them, whatever. Okay, because there were a lot of shirts ordered. There weren't that many photos on the table. The people who thought they were good basically said, well, why wouldn't he sign them? Because he's sitting there and they're right in front of them. So there are two, you know, reasonable sides to that argument revolving around those pictures. 
Okay, so this conversation continues. That didn't solve anything. And someone posts the information on Reddit because, well, of course they have a handwriting expert on Reddit because there's everything on Reddit. I say this with a healthy dose of skepticism, but that person concludes that the autographs are from a different person citing zonal balance and zonal proportions. Okay, that's the handwriting underscore expert, I think was the, the username here. At this point, the whole situation is getting JFK level of analysis here. You've heard of multiple shooters. Well, now we have people that think there are three signers even. Uh, and I appreciate the poster that jumped in with a quick second spitter Seinfeld reference too. I want you to know that no one responded in there, but your efforts did not go unnoticed. Anyway, those of you, the, the people that are invested in Luca, I think this whole uh, analysis, even though it might seem silly to some people, for, the, for those of you that are invested, it's most certainly worthwhile. You've got to try and figure out the truth. But at this point, there was still some information missing. So mid to late April, I think was the time frame here, National Treasures comes out. I talked about that set on the podcast and that checklist already. Remember how I talked about the fact that this product was very much driven by rookies. And it was very much, in fact, they mailed it in on a lot of the veteran stuff because they knew people were going to crack this because A, they like gambling, two, they like rookies. And remember that this set, more than anyone else, had more Luca cards. So guess what auto showed up on all of those cards? There were a lot of them. The loopy, neat Lulu signature. And keep in mind, this is also the established rookie card that people are chasing, the RPA. So the regular version numbered to 99, the lowest sale I've seen, and, and there might be other numbers out there, is $7,500. There's 99 of this card. The highest I've seen is almost $17,000. Now that's a lot of money either way, and if these are in fact signed by somebody else and I'm the owner of one, which I'm not, that would be pretty hard for me to come to grips with. Um, even if I don't own Luca cards and I'm purchasing a product that they're pushing and they're driving that product with questionable signatures, something about that doesn't sit well with me. You'd think they would just create a video of him signing to clear things up, right? I mean, they are headquartered right down the road from the Mavs, like less than 30 minutes away, I think. Maybe they could just go get them signed. So this ongoing discussion has picked up and dropped off over time. Well, then earlier this week, we got an actual video of Luca signing cards for a card company, Upper Deck. He was signing a group of signature kicks cards for Goodwin Champions. Notice if you watch that video, he's taking his time. He pauses between autos, and it looks like the scratchy version that the detractors have attributed to him all along. The only question that remains when this thing first gets shown to people is when were these cards signed? So people ask, and Upper Deck replied that they were signed several weeks ago. So that brings us to today. Those are all the developments that we have. I'm not here to try and convince you what side you should be on. For the sake of the hobby, I hope that all of these autographs are real, or that they're really from Luca. My opinion, however, is that there are multiple signers, and, and I think the scratchier autographs are the correct ones. But you need to go weigh the evidence for yourself. For those of you that think otherwise, I hope that I've given your side proper consideration on this recording. But let's say that they're not signed by him. 
Where do we go from here? What's the potential fallout of all this? So uh, according to Darren Ravel, um, he's done, and this was in, I think, the DAC article even. He said, when Panini sends cards to be signed by an athlete, it requires the athlete to sign an affidavit stating that what it is returning is genuine. Now, even though, like I said, I personally feel like someone else is signing these cards, there's no way that we can prove it. Unless there's hidden footage of someone else signing his cards, you know, Lucas Camp and Panini, they're just going to deny, deny, deny. They'll point out how players' autos change. They'll point out how many cards they made him sign. Uh, And look, they'll say, you know, athletes change autographs. That's no secret. Several people have pointed out to me that LeBron has gone through a number of different variations. The difference here with Luka, though, is that there's a major jump between two very different styles. And when he's brought in to sign on camera, we aren't seeing the new auto. I think Panini knows that. I think they can see that. But I don't anticipate them putting that much pressure on him. Quite frankly, Panini needs these athletes more than these athletes need Panini. They're not going to pressure them a whole lot. So I want to take three phrases that I've read this week and give them some thought and give them some consideration here on air. And I'm going to read them in order and then I'm going to break them down. So number one is, someone said this would be very, very bad for Panini if true. Number two, the ramifications of fake signings for a company that is paying heavily for his signature is very serious and I doubt he's faking Panini signatures. Number three, he wouldn't do fans like that. Okay, so now all of this stuff sounds like stuff that I've read with the the whole Luca fiasco, but all of these phrases I actually pulled from the conversation about the Shaq autographs. And the reason that I point that out is because we can see a lot of parallels and we can use this situation to kind of see where this Luca thing might be going. The first one I said is that, you know, this would be very, very bad for Panini if true. Well, you know, as far as Shaq goes, they never owned up to it. And there really weren't any serious consequences for anyone involved on their end. So even though we would think that, that's not the case. Um, Second phrase was the ramifications of fake signings for a company that is paying heavily for his signatures is very serious. Let me repeat something I just said not long ago. Panini needs these athletes more than these athletes need Panini. And then number three, he wouldn't do fans like that. Somebody said that about Shaq. He seems like a good guy. Well, apparently he would and he did. You just can't use this kind of logic when it comes to examining these signatures and and defending these athletes. We're not in their situations. We don't know. Uh, And it's weird to me with Luca, it seems like the loopy ones on stickers seem consistent with autographs that are more time consuming. Some people said, well, maybe he takes more pride in those autos. If he takes that much pride in his auto, then why don't the in-person examples look anything like that? I mentioned baseball earlier. I've been around plenty of MLB players that worked hard to sign many, many copies of a card while still maintaining a nice, consistent looking autograph. Um, there were a couple of twins that were really big on this for a while. Minnesota Twins, Michael Kadire and, and Tori Hunter. Uh, I think Michael Kadire, the story was that he started his career with a really sloppy autograph. Harmon Killebrew, who had a beautiful autograph, pulled him aside and had a chat with them. Basically said, take some pride in your signature. And from there on out, every autograph that I ever saw from Kadire, whether it be a paid signing, in person, a certified card or whatever... 
had a really nice readable signature that he can be proud of. This isn't an issue of pride here. I've seen a lot of people here then going forward talk about how the, the legal consequences could be pretty severe, but I think unless something more definitive comes up, there's no legal case to be made. And let's say if there was, you know, maybe some more definitive proof somehow, and if Panini really feared a class action suit, let me em emphasize here, the pressure would have to be intense for them to do that. I think they'd just reprint some of the higher-end stuff like National Treasures and then have Lucas sign them. Um, what would they do with the lesser-valued stuff? I don't know. It would be a mess. But at the end of the day, they're just going to put the onus on the player, as they should, even though they could have been more proactive in making sure that he signed them in the first place. One thing I will say, though, and this is especially for those of you that own Luca autographs. I'm not talking down to you. I'm not jealous of you or whatever. I will say this, though. Panini's handling of these situations seems to be about 50-50, and it requires pressure from powerful people. So those of you that own these Luca cards, you have to realize the risk. The odds are that Panini will not take care of you unless they absolutely have to. So let's think about how things will shape up if they're not forced to deal with this. If the Shaq autos are any indication, somehow, it sounds crazy to even say this, but your cards might not lose that much value over time. Before I recorded this, I contacted several big Shaq collectors to see if they've noticed a dip in price in the bad autos since this whole Shaq fiasco. They did not. I've seen several people say that they're holding off on certain Luca autos because of this, and that might be true, but overall the market is very strong. I mean, even with the SIG in question, this RPA is kind of the, the holy grail for Luca cards, and it seems like people want it for that reason alone. I suppose uh, it's a nice piece of Luca themed art. You've got a player worn jersey with a possible mother signed auto. Yikes. We'll see. The Shaq cards in question here were not $7,500 cards. They were not $15,000 cards. They were worth a very, very small fraction of that. So it's hard to tell if the Shaq is going to be a good litmus test for this or not. But whoever you are, no matter what side you're on, if you want something to come of this, you're going to have to put the pressure on. I know some of you are tweeting at Luca and tweeting at his mom, and I really don't think that's going to do anything. Um, then everyone, the default in situations like this, they say, well, we need to go tweet Darren Ravel or a reporter or whatever. Someone needs to write up a concise, easy to understand summary of the situation at hand before you approach any of these reporters, because no reporter has the time to read through 29 pages of information that's written in collector lingo that they might not be very well versed in. So I would say to collectors, this one is completely in your hands. Alright guys, now that I've shared my thoughts on this, I want this to be a conversation. I want actual dialogue, unlike some people. I want to hear your responses. Tell me what you think. Do you have any Luca autos? Do you think he actually signed these cards? If you believe they were in fact signed by someone else, what do you think could reasonably be done? What should Panini do going forward? Let me know on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.